0: where to start this morning. I confess I have family who have actively prayed for and worked for the overturning of Roe for decades. And I have in that very same family people who are actively beyond angry and grieving and protesting. Somewhere In that wide range, in the mix, are many women who are immediately and and directly impacted in ways we cannot uh, nearly know, given the unique complexities and circumstances surrounding every pregnancy, and I, as a male, cannot at all pretend to appreciate More, I readily recognize that, that Friday's ruling felt significant, not only because of the significant shift in law, but, but almost immediately, right? The reverberations were felt uh, in, in other laws, and, 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 and then, of course, the nerves throughout the country in such a way that, that even as we don't know how all this will play out in the long run, all of us sense that this is part of, of, of some kind of continued significant shift in the very landscape of the way we share and do life together. And I imagine as we gather for worship in this space and over live stream, we have folks scattered along the same spectrum that I know in my own biological family. Some folks who are very much immediately impacted by this, themselves or, or right there in their family, and then all of us, of course, who who sense the reverberations coursing through our being and the fabric of our nation. Where, where then to start? You know, I'm drawn to remember the prayer that we do pray together every week and that we will pray together in a bit, our diverse voices join and at one point, always that petition. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whatever heaven's all about, whatever your realm is all about, whatever your way is all about, land that here. Land it on our land. Land it on our church. Land it on our hearts. And so we will, we will start there. We will start with our shared ache for heaven to land on Earth, And whatever that looks like, however that then intersects with our realities this day. And, and we do that this day by looking at Matthew chapter 20. This glimpse Jesus gives us into what the kingdom of heaven looks like on earth. It begins, as you heard Susan emphasize, For the kingdom of heaven is like this, for God's way on earth as it is in heaven. It, it, it's like this. It's like a landowner. It's like an employer. It's, it's like a boss. Goes out early for, to find some, some laborers to work in his vineyard, and, and they mutually agree on a fair wage. And, and that's a wage in that day that's going to support that worker and the worker's family. You heard the landowner comes back at 9 and gets to more workers that are without work, and the NRSV translates that people are standing there idle. Um, which can imply maybe they're lazy, they're not showing initiative, but but the, the literal Greek there just says they were, quote, without work. Doesn't comment one way or another on why. They're without work, but they're without work, come on, work in the vineyard, I will pay you what is right. The story's kind of moving along without incident, but, but it starts to get a little strange, right? The landowner comes back out at three and at five and finds more workers and invites them to the vineyard and... Any landowner would have a decent sense about, of the amount of work needed to be accomplished on his vineyard for the day. Well, why didn't he hire the right amount of people at 6 a.m.? Nothing in this parable indicates we have a foolish landowner who has no basic sense for how to run and manage the, the vineyard. In fact, it's our first indication that maybe doing the work of the vineyard and finishing the work of the vineyard is actually not the priority for this vineyard owner. Maybe this landowner keeps inviting more and more people at all hours of the day because because he has a different priority. And in fact, he does. He's, He's about to press into and disrupt an assumption that takes root In the very heart of all of us, often at a very early age. I remember myself at the age of seven, standing alongside my brother Michael, who was five then. We were at the end of our driveway on a hot June, summer, kind of mid-morning time frame in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I grew up. We had just finished setting up our very first lemonade stand. And the business was coming in. 25 cents for a cup here, 25 cents for a cup there, 25 cents cup, 25 cents cup. Couple hours in, my Aunt Carrie, she drives by in her red minivan. Hey, boys. Hi, Aunt Carrie. Looks good. But, boys, I don't have any money on me right now. To his eternal credit, my younger brother Michael starts to reach pour a cup and pour my Aunt Carrie uh, lemonade on this blistering hot day. To my eternal damnation, I am confident. (laughs) I stop him in his tracks and say, oh, so sorry, maybe come back later? Because, I mean, it's not fair. It's not fair that all these people paid a quarter for their lemonade. Now someone comes along and thinks they can get it free. To her eternal credit, Carrie graciously drove on and does not hold this against me today. But it's one of a few handful of childhood memories that I can see vividly the whole scene because I remember how, how deeply this sense of fairness ran within me and how immediately and deeply wrong it felt to have the fairness possibly violated When the evening came, uh, the vineyard owner says to his manager, call the laborers and, and, and give them their pay. Start with the last and then go to the first. And there, quite publicly, for all to see, they're given each the usual daily wage. And, and that deep assumption embedded from childhood, you hear, comes to the fore, well, if it's fair that they would get a whole day's wages for an hour of work, a couple hours of work, imagine what's fair for us who woke up at 6 a.m. and have been working all day. But you know the story. They also received the daily, same daily wage. Surely they would have all been perfectly content had they worked and been given the amount mutually agreed upon in sort of a private way here you go, here you go, here you go. But, but once they're able to see what everybody else is getting, once they're able to evaluate what everybody else is getting and kind of compare to what they got, how many are the ways this is so often our reality? I mean, I wonder where are the places we might readily and rightly point to and say that's that's not fair. She got into that school, and you know they have that family connection, and, 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 and she didn't. We worked harder, and we worked longer. They just arrived, and they got that windfall. And here, this family has been faithfully working at it for so long, and they've, they've lost almost everything. His scan was negative. He has never made a healthy choice in his life, and here is this health and fitness nut uh, about to have to go through chemo. That far less credentialed person was appointed or given the job than the far more credentialed person. And we've been aware of these unfairnesses for some time, no? Yeah, I, I came across the remarks of Reverend Samuel T. Lloyd III. Actually, the final remarks he gave in 2011 after serving as the dean of the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., from 2005 to 2011. And he was reflecting on this very passage in Matthew 20. And he wrote at one point in that reflection, You know, people, again, 2011, people are in despair at the dysfunction of this Congress. They're mad as hornets at the president, the banks, Wall Street executives, and anyone else they can pin blame on. This isn't the way life is supposed to work. Life's supposed to be fair. The economy and Congress are supposed to function. Why are we the ones to go through the worst economy in 80 years? It's all unfair. And you know what? Both then and now, a lot of the times, we're not wrong. When we call out on fairness, you usually have a keen sense for the disparity about how things should work and how things are not work based on a compass, an internal compass that got rooted there very early in childhood. The day laborers are not wrong. They worked one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the heat and hardship of the day. And how, how does it feel to be right about unfairness? that we see towards us, around us, compared to him, her, them, we read the workers, quote, grumbled against the landowners. landowner. Grumbling, it should be said, is not the same as righteous indignation or righteous anger about the wrongs and evils of society. Grumbling, it's the same word that's used in Exodus when the people of God are in the wilderness and they grumble against Moses and God. There's not enough food and water. Grumbling is a word that's used over the religious leaders who don't like Jesus. They grumble against him. It's the same word Paul writes to the church about on a couple different occasions, including to the church at Philippi. Do, church, all the things that you do without grumbling, that you might be blameless and innocent. Children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Hell, C.S. Lewis once wrote, hell begins with a grumbling mood. Always complaining, always blaming others. A strange thing when we can spend our days pointing out all that is unfair and, and, and being right, and, and, and oddly finding our hearts withering under the grind of grumbling. Digging ourselves, as Lewis puts it, into a hell we are sure, certain is happening because of him and her and them and God. As I mentioned a few moments ago, grumbling is not righteous anger. But even righteous anger alone cannot be the, the sort of sole driving force and passion of, of, of moving forward because as Scripture makes clear, any form of anger is like playing with fire, which, which means today, even if we say, I'm not grumbling, and that's a worthy thing to discern, are we grumbling or are we righteously angry? But uh, it's not grumbling, it's righteous anger, Fair. Even righteous anger must ultimately be harnessed and channeled into the service of something higher, lest it becomes hatred and singe everything it touches. How often Martin Luther King Jr. preached on this very thing. So what then? If, if, if not grumbling about this person and that person and, and living in that world, if not righteous anger alone, though that is something good and right, but if not that alone, then what, what more? What what else? Let's, let's listen once more to our landowner as he replies to the grumbling workers. Friends, I, I did you no know wrong. Didn't we de- agree? That was the usual daily wage. It was going to take care of you and your family. That, that's what belongs to you. Go. I, in other words, look at what you've been given. Perfectly sufficient and agreeable to you. Instead of looking around at what everybody else is getting... Focus on what you have received and and go. How how did Teddy Roosevelt famously riff on this idea? Comparison is the thief of joy. How does it change things to slow the comparing and start with a focus on all we have been given? Because isn't every last bit a gift? Even if we say, well, I worked for my money. Sure, but, but, but the family and the education and the life experiences that led to getting that job and the connections that led maybe to yet other jobs, were any of that a gift? No, I, I studied hard in my education. I made good life choices. I, I treated people well, and those connections helped me out. Sure. Uh, and what of the heart and the brain that we are given to do all of that? And any measure of protection and preservation they have known in this lifetime are, are not those Gifts. Uh, Yes, but I wisely employed my brain and my heart and wisely protected them just so with my choices. And Who animates our very being? Our breath, our soul. You know, no matter how much we can point to our work, our effort, our deserving, as Christians we cannot help but fundamentally go back to the singular starting point, Really, it's all a gift. We did not decide to be born, where to be born, among whom to be born, in in, in what stage of of the world and and, and the country and the the fortunes and misfortunes we have, have known. Certainly, we are saved by grace alone. What happens in our day when when so much vies for our heart's attention, so much weighs upon our heart, so much distracts our heart? What happens when our hearts slow and simply look upon all the manna we have received? I mean, without looking to our left or our right, just what happens when we look upon all that we have received and who we have received? You know, one of the most foundational theological statements in the entire Reformed tradition of which we are a part of. It's found in the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's stated in a fresh way in the Presbyterian Church's brief statement of faith. In life and in death, we belong to God. a statement of pure grace. So precious is the gift of, of our life that God refuses anything to separate us from God. No amount of sin, no amount of failure, undeserving, anything else we can think of can separate us from this most gracious, foundational truth. Grace is the ground of our theological tradition. And once we begin to see that that all that we have is a gift, once that becomes our most fundamental posture, we stop, I think, holding everything so tightly. With the sense that it's ours, we've earned it, anything, it's a bit un- if anything it's a bit unfair, we don't have more. No, once it's all a gift, we actually start to become more and more like the landowner himself. You know, the one who looks upon the laborers who worked one hour and decides to give them a wage that ensures that they, too, will not have to worry about what they and their family will eat that day. Because grace has a different calculus than fairness. I choose to give to the last the same as I choose to give you. Grace prompts generosity. Grace prompts a fundamental desire for the well-being of all. Grace advocates for and cares for terrified women right now without ledgers about sin or fairness or sides. Grace supports children in the foster care system with the same manna we give our biological children. Grace extends the same basic dignity to the prisoner as the special guest. Grace ensures the same Basic well-being for the foreigner as the citizen. On a scorching hot day, grace has lemonade for the basic human thirst. Money or no money. Which is to say, the scandal of grace is it's not beholden to the longest tenured, the longest membered, the longest working, the hardest working, the right side of the aisle, and then maybe if there's leftovers, we'll get to the rest. Grace is beholden beholden to ensuring manna for all. In fact, if grace has a way of prioritizing how it's going to go about its work, it does so in accordance with the final verse of our passage. The last will be... First, and the first will be last. Who's last in these days? And in gratitude for all that we have received, who does the church then invite to the front of the line and the front of our hearts, regardless of how scandalous it is to disrupt the ledgers. Amen.